everyone, and welcome back to the Grant Rant, a Hanover Research podcast. Every month, we answer follow-up questions and chat on topics from our monthly webinar series. Folks who attend or listen to those monthly webinars have the opportunity to send additional questions here to the podcast. Um, I'm Mallory Waters. I'm a grants advisor here at Hanover, and I'm joined by Katie Bristow. Hi, Katie. Hi, it's so good to be back. How are you? Well, it's nice to be back. Uh, Today, we're going to be chatting with grants consultant Paul Tuttle on funding in the arts and the humanities. Hi, Paul. Hi, how are you all? Doing well, doing well. Thanks for joining us here today. You're very welcome. I'm excited to talk about it, the arts and the humanities. Perfect. Great. Um, well, let's go ahead and let's get started. Um, Paul, let's let's chat a little bit as we get going here, since this is your first time on the podcast. Uh, can you share a little bit about your background? Maybe give us a 30-second overview of who you are and how you came to Hanover? Well, actually, this is uh, my second go-round at Hanover. Um, I originally wanted to be a business and technical writing instructor, and then... Uh, went into the grants world as my second career in uh, 2000 and um, did a little bit of work with funding opportunity, uh, identification and delivery, a little bit of work with proposal development, a little bit of work as a, um, as a uh, pre-award research administrator, helping to package proposals and send them out the door and um, stepped fully into um into grant writing and proposal development the first time uh, I came to Hanover and then uh, went to what I had thought at the time was my dream job, director of proposal development at the uh, largest historically black college or institution in the nation and um, came back to Hanover very recently, just about a month, month and a half, two months ago, um, because I frankly did not want to come back to the office after the pandemic. Ah. Uh, <laughs> that was, uh, that was the, uh, yeah, that was, that was the make or break the, the deal maker deal breaker kind of issue there. Yeah. And so that that's a large part of the reason why I came back to Hanover. Um, I'm very happy to be back among the team. Their loss, our gain for sure. Absolutely. It's it's so great to have you back. I've known you, Paul, for almost a decade now, and um, we're so happy to have you back. You're part of the boomerang crew. <laughs> same, same, same with the happiness and the boomeranging. Absolutely. Aww. So, Paul, let's um, let's get into today's topic and talk about arts and humanities funding in general. Um, so, Arts and humanities funding is is frequently on the chopping block. Um, I know you talked a bit about this in the webinar and about how these disciplines are frequently underappreciated. Um, if you had a crystal ball, what do you see on the horizon in terms of arts and humanities funding? Well, first, I want to take a half step back and talk a little bit about the 2007-2008 housing bubble when it burst the federal and state governmental agencies that were doing grant making, um, they had to hold their cards funding-wise close to their chest because uh, during the bubble and and immediately after, they weren't sure whether they were going to have to bail all of us out, not just the banks. So the arts and humanities and other large foundations supporting other disciplines stepped up. And so there became a, um, a, uh, a trend toward, uh, especially among the largest of the foundations, such as, such as Mellon and Ford, 
Kresge, Knight, some of the others, they, they came a trend toward uh, separating their funding into one pot of money that was actually uh, reserved for grant making programs. And, and they put out requests for proposals and, and, and had uh, review panels and all those sorts of things, much like a federal agency would. And on the other side, um, still within the same foundation, they would have a gifts, donations, contributions pool of money for people asking for gifts. So in the same way that most higher education institutions have two offices handling uh, external money coming in, um, the, the grants and contracts office and the uh, traditional philanthropy office, um, the often called development or the university foundation or something like that. In that same way, some of the largest foundations started putting aside money in both kinds of pools with different IRS regulations um, uh, uh, and requirements for those different kinds of monies. So just a little bit about that in terms of arts and humanities funding. Um, so, so there's that. Uh, now, as a result, we see that the, the formerly bright line between what constituted a grant contract cooperative agreement versus what constitutes a gift contribution, donation, the traditional philanthropic world, what had been a bright line is, as the result of that 2007-2008 housing bubble, a more blurred line, essentially. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's one, that's one consequence. But also on the horizon in terms of the arts and humanities funding, we're seeing different modes of funding come to the fore. We're seeing not only those large foundations uh, split their funding, in essence, as I just said, but also... Uh, we're seeing things like crowdfunding and TikTok and Instagram come to the fore. And we're seeing people uh, talk a lot about influence and talk a lot about impact and those sorts of things. And so so we're, we're, we're seeing a more, in a sense, democratic, small d, democratic um, approach toward arts and humanities funding where people can support the arts and humanities funding in a wide variety of ways. So if I had that crystal ball, I would I would say that that um, that we are seeing uh, increased uh, opportunities and possibilities through non-traditional funding sources. Wow. Thank you for that, Paul. That was um, that's so interesting. Yeah. And it's something that we lived through, but it was it was a little bit before my grant writing experience. So having to put in that context. Um, is really enlightening. And I feel like we saw a microcosm of that with the COVID-19 pandemic with these foundations kind of changing their funding and again, kind of splitting their, you know, funding, not just for the arts and humanities, but, you know, traditional foundation funders who had specific priority areas shifting chunks of their, um, of their funding over to COVID-19 funding. And related um, with the social and emotional uh, sectors, um, the the public sphere, all of that, questions of how to respond rapidly to a pandemic, um, mm-hmm. the likes of which we hadn't had for 100 years. Right, right. Well, speaking of funding and speaking of costs, uh, this came up during the webinar, and it's a question that um, I get all the time, and I'm sure Katie does too, um, but with things like cost match. So the NEA programs um, require a cost match, which can be challenging for institutions who are applying for these opportunities. 
Um, can you talk a little bit about what is a cost match for those who may not know and why programs like the NAI, NEA make cost match something that you have to do as part of your application? Well, cost match at its simplest is what the grantee comes up with uh, on their side to uh, provide some skin in the game. That was part of the original uh, philosophy back during the uh, uh, LBJ Great Society legislation, which was when the NEA and NEH um, agencies were actually formed. So there was some some requirement for artists um, and musicians and uh, dramatists and so forth to uh, to to either themselves or the 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 uh, the uh, groups that they were associated with for those organizations to have some skin in the game, some 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 investment themselves in what the federal government was trying to do, um, and 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 that was also the reasoning went. That was also a way in which the federal dollar could go further. But it's actually in the authorizing legislation, the, the, the cost match requirements. And, uh, and they have those uh, explanations on, on, their, on their websites, NEA and NEH. But the, the model was supposed to be, in the, in the mid-1960s, the model was supposed to be that uh, states, regions, and even some larger cities in the United States would have would each have their own arts and humanities councils. And those places would be venues for middle-class and rich folks to donate to the arts and humanities. Those donations would then be collected and then serve as a fund for individual artists, musicians, dramatists, et cetera, to, uh, to, to, to seek that cost match that's required for the federal programming. So, um, so that was the that was the idea, and that was how that was how it was it was described in the in the authorizing legislation. The um, the 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 question about why? Well, it 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 is. I, I think I've covered some of that, but um, but but I, I, I think also people need to remember that um, even then, um, even in the middle of a of a of a very very strong. Um, post-war economic surge, um, even even then, uh, the the United States still funded uh, what we would now call technology-based economic development more than and, and and the associated science and math, STEM fields, and all of that. Um, you know, the newer the newest innovations, the and and up to the present, the newest iPhone and Tesla and so on and so forth, uh, self-driving automated cars, whatever. Um, all of that, the, 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 the funding is, is greater for that because our imagination is captured by that um, as, as a culture and as, a, um, and as a, um, an economic development engine. Um, our, our imagination is captured by that more sure. than, unfortunately, by arts and humanities um, because we, unfortunately, we will pay good money to go and watch the annual Nutcracker at the uh, at the at the local theater, but we don't necessarily understand or appreciate the 12, 15 years of practice that it takes for that ballerina to go up so gracefully on her toes. So so that kind of thing we we aren't yet as a culture still aren't aren't yet both um, so appreciative as to as to fund the uh, the arts and humanities um, to that extent. 
But an interesting part of this whole this whole STEM push is that people are now realizing that in order to solve certain kinds of um, intractable problems, uh, there has to be the social, there has to be the cultural, there has to be the artistic, there has to be the human element. Right. And 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 those in those ways, some of the arts and humanities can be brought in into some of the STEM funding. So there there are some opportunities. Uh, to, to fund what you as an arts and humanities uh, specialist, expert, uh, professional does, um, what, 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 what you do, um, there's, there's, uh, there are ways to do that through that side door, in essence. Absolutely. It's, you know, it's really interesting because I can see both sides of it. I can see I can see your point about capturing the imagination because who didn't want, you know, a Jetsons flying vehicle when they were a kid? I wanted one. Right. <laughs> but I also, you know, I also did ballet for 18 years. So I also understand um, just what it takes to, you know, to train and to, you know, do something like that and to hone a craft like that. Um, when we talk about, you know, dollar for dollar, you mentioned putting skin in the game. Does that skin have to be cold, hard cash or can it be what I've heard um, and what folks may know as in-kind contributions when it comes to the match? Well, it, it certainly can't be other federal funds, not unless the other federal agency agrees to it in writing. Right. And that is um, so rare as to be, as to be non-existent, um, that kind of situation. Um, but you can use cash or in-kind funding from other sources, non-federal sources, for the NEA and NEH uh, cost match requirements uh, when they do require. Uh, they don't always require any any longer. I'm not sure exactly how the interpretations of the originating legislation have changed, but there are some programs, especially the NEH, that do not require cost match. So I'm not sure exactly why that is. So so please don't ask me that. But um, but I, I have been seeing a change. But the uh, but at least at the NEH, but the NEA does have cost match requirements, and they actually say on the website, uh, we will require a one to one match of uh, of cash or in kind. And in kind can be for those people who who are not sure that they understand that term. In kind can be stuff like facilities, like, um, like, uh, like, uh, access to, um, to, to, to equipment. Um, uh, it can be things that you offer or it can be time and effort that's offered. Mm -hmm. And that becomes, of course, because time is money that becomes salary dollars. So, um, so yes, income can be those kinds of things. Yeah. And, and on that note, like something I often recommend if I'm working with a PI that doesn't doesn't know how to go about securing a match, doesn't know what that means, I'll often just point them to the university foundation office and just have them ask if they have ongoing asks coming in. You know, maybe they are currently working with a foundation that's interested in making a large donation, but they haven't secured it yet. That PI might be able to kind of talk to the foundation staff about being included in some way in that gift and using that as the match, so that they don't, so that there's less labor on the PI um, of securing two grants. Right? There might be other ongoing institutional funding um, requests that they could be connected to that would that would meet that. Um, I'd like to add two more points to that. Um, number one, 
at an institution, the philanthropic arm, whether it's called the University Foundation or the, or the, the Office of University Advancement or Development, um, the, the, the university's philanthropic arm, they have the responsibility of managing the relationships with the with the uh, with the uh, the philanthropic Very um, point <laughs> uh, phil- philanthropic foundations and other other uh, people and organizations within that traditional philanthropy space around them. Um, they are the ones who are responsible for managing those relationships. So it is protocol. It is not just suggested, but it is yeah. protocol. Yeah. To go to the uh the the office of development or the or the the office of university advancement or the university foundation it's protocol and it's protocol to find out and go through the right channels because um just a very short story one time at a previous institution i got a phone call from a local big foundation that that had very deep pockets saying that uh we have two requests from your organization in our hands, one is a $10,000 request from a faculty member, and the other one is a million-dollar request from your university foundation. Which one do you want us to uh, to fund? And oh, I said, man. well, number one, that's above my pay grade. That's number the two, here's the, here's the Exactly. And here's the telephone number that you need to call and the person you need to ask for in order to make that decision, the vice chancellor for university advancement. So, um, yeah. So, uh, so, yes, I have had that happen. And so let me tell you, if you're a faculty member listening, please do not, quote, go rogue and go out and, and meet with, uh, with, uh, with foundation representatives yourself um, in any kind of systematic, intentional, deliberate way. Um, please go through protocol, go through the advancement office of the university foundation and, and, and go with the people who actually uh, are charged with handling those relationships. The second point that I want to make is that um, with cost match, the um, often a good place to start is 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 not just your yeah. university foundation office, but also your departmental office, your department chair, or your school or college, your dean. Um, so they sometimes have um, I wouldn't call it a slush fund because that's not a polite term, but sometimes they have uh, discretionary dollars that they can help you with and uh, and they will be able to sometimes they even have internal grant programs that would then act as a cost match function as a cost match for an NEA or NEH uh, proposal. So I would, I would go ahead and, and ask questions and investigate and above all, go through the go through the protocol at your institution. Great. Thanks, Paul. Slush fund gives me strong Nixon vibes. So I get it. <laughs> <laughs> discretionary dollars. Discretionary dollars. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah, different um, <laughs> so I, when we talk about uh, program officer outreach, we usually are talking about it when it comes to the sciences, uh, to agencies like the NSF and NIH and how critical it is to reach out to the program officer and share your concept and have those conversations before submitting a proposal. I don't feel like we talk about it that much when it comes to the arts and the humanities. And that could just be the nature of the beast and the fact that, um, you know, arts and humanities is a smaller chunk of what we do here at Hanover. But let's talk a little bit about program officer outreach. Is it just as important in the arts and in the humanities as it is when we're talking about an agency like NSF and NIH, where if you don't reach out to the program officer, then the chances of you receiving funding are, you know, pretty low. What do you think, Paul? Well, I think it's very important. 
um, if those program officers are open to it. Not all program officers, including at major foundations, are really open to it. Um, and sometimes they tell you in print, and sometimes you have to find out the hard way. And sometimes people talk about negative experiences they have when they try to make a call or submit an email. Um, but I think we also have to go back to protocol. Um, those sometimes at a larger institution, like a, like a research one or research two, sometimes you actually have a development officer in your area or in your discipline, uh, who is charged with, 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 with making sure that that relationship works. So I would, I would intentionally go under the, the, the umbrella of that development officer, um, or the, uh, director of, um, of corporate and foundation relations or who, whoever, whatever is a similar title at your, at your institution, go under that person's umbrella and ask them to assist you in, in making that outreach. And, uh, and they will be able to help you with, with the, the nuances of, uh, how to reach out, whether to do it by a phone call or an email or some combination of the two, what to say. Uh, they may even give you a script uh, or they may wish to be, in fact, in many cases, they will wish to be on the call with you, um, yeah. or, or, or copied on, 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 on the email. So, uh, so yes, um, where in the, uh, non-philanthropic area with the non-arts and the non-humanities, other kinds of disciplines, uh, the, the, the sciences, the STEM fields, um, the program officers want to talk with the person who has the ideas first and foremost, um, on the philanthropic side of the house, it's different. And, uh, and I would say you would need to follow that protocol and make sure that you go through the correct way to establish and maintain relationships. Cause that's right. even more important than the ideas almost when it comes to the arts and humanities and the philanthropic landscape. Right. And I feel like, you know, we talk about program officer outreach a lot, just in our daily conversations with faculty members and with PIs. And I think that there is, you know, what's the worst that can happen? I think when it comes down to it, you know, what's the worst that can happen? Uh, the worst that can happen is that they are mean or they they say that they're not interested at all in your uh, concept or your idea or they just don't respond to you. Um, I think that's the that's, you know, generally speaking, if you're doing it right. And that's the kind of the big asterisk that I have there. If you're doing it right, if you're following the guidance and reaching out with a concept paper or with your uh, abstract or something like that, and you know, you're not reaching out to them a day before the deadline saying, Hey, what do you think? Um, or things like that then there's really no reason to be afraid of program officer outreach. Um, and I feel like a lot of faculty members, they feel like they're going to bug the program officer or they feel like, you know, um, it's just something that they're intimidated by. And there's really no need to be. Um, but again, well, there, there is no need to be intimidated by the program officer, but you need to be respectful of their time. Right. And you also need to be respectful of, 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 of the manner in which they wish to be approached. And so, uh, especially on the philanthropic side of the house, and especially with arts and humanities, um, when it comes to foundations, um, you would want to um, you would want to have the uh, the development officer or the director of corporate foundation relations to uh, basically serve as your person introducing you to to that program officer. But when it comes to NEA and NEH, um, they are paid to be very open. To, um, that's part of their job is to be very open 
to uh, to faculty members calling up and asking about uh, about uh, arts and humanities ideas and whether or not X idea would uh, be fundable under their particular funding opportunity Y. So yes, there. I wanted to make 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 you aware that I was earlier talking about foundations, and right. now I'm now I'm making the the, the clear distinction between uh, the foundation um, uh, program officer mindset in general right. and the NEA NEH program officer mindset. Um, right. But but you do have to remember that 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 they do have a nationwide and even sometimes international perspective, and they have a lot of calls coming in, so you need to respect their time. Right. So don't stand outside their house with a boombox, uh, <laughs> goblet style. Do yeah. it the right way. Do it the right way. No matter if it's the found, if it's a foundation or if it's the, um, you know, a federal agency, do it the right way. Right. Yeah. And, and that includes the 1812 overture also. Yes. But yes. <laughs> and, and any of those, any of those, you, you don't want to make a, 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 an obnoxious nuisance of yourself. Yes. Yeah, I'm always singing the praises of NEH. Like, I'm always so happy when I work with a PI on an NEH project because they're so good at being very structured about that outreach. Many programs will have, like, a specific preliminary deadline to send in a draft proposal, and the program officer will review the whole thing. Not all NEH programs, right, but but many of them. And they build it right into the timeline if you look at the solicitation, and it's just so... I wish more funders would do that because it is so helpful. I know not everybody has the capacity for that volume, um, but I know every time I work with a PI that takes advantage of that preliminary proposal review, mm-hmm. they do so much better when it comes to the final submission round because they've, it, it's like skipping a year, you know, it's like working with mm-hmm. a grant reviewer. Um, mm-hmm. And and I think, I think it's important to remind people that NEH is alone right. among the federal grant making agencies <laughs> and offering that at all. So King um, among men. <laughs> yes. If, if, if you do, in fact, if you do, in fact, uh, see yourself as a person who plans and who does things ahead of time, leverage that to your advantage by reaching out to that NEH program officer and, uh, and, and saying, yes, please, I would like you to take a look at my draft because they can, they can say a lot, including saying a lot on paper in their critiques um, that others feel that they cannot say, except over the phone, uh, in other disciplines or from other funding agencies. Absolutely, and and there's also a wealth of um, uh, examples on NEH program websites, uh, sample proposals, sample budgets, and stuff like that. So many great resources. So, yeah, do the do the research on those resources before reaching out. Uh, yeah. in, in the in the vein of being respectful of their time, don't ask them questions that you can easily answer with uh, five minutes on the website or in the solicitation. But, Correct, but, and and also don't take those funded proposals as gospel. Either. That's what I was but, just going to say, Paul. So thanks for going there. Because <laughs> right, right, because because I, I I really think that there are well well all of us who 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 are in the the world of ideas and and creating new information out of out of out of nothing but what's going on in our brains. All of us who are in that kind of sphere, we want to know the specific pathway, turn right here, turn left there, and finally you'll reach the pot of gold kind of thing, the money tree, whatever. And, and we want to know that, and, and we want to follow those, those funded proposals as though they are guideposts toward all funded proposals. No, they're merely examples, and, and, and we need to treat them as such. So, so we don't need to 
mimic them and, and we can and we shouldn't mimic them completely because what we should be doing is we should be saying, okay, what can we extrapolate from these examples? What, what, what does NEH do and, and, and how do they fund and what kinds of, well, what kinds of, uh, of, 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 of awards have they made in the past? You can see those through an award search, right? But you can also see the kinds of moves that, that, that others have made, rhetorical moves that others have made in terms of presenting their ideas. And so you can see the different kinds of things that are appreciated and therefore funded. Um, and you can see whether some of those moves, especially for NEH, you can see whether some of those moves are welcome, moves are welcome in the, um, in, in the whole process that Katie was talking about earlier about submitting a draft early. Um, and, and receiving critiques. So you can actually have the program officer tell you, yes, this is, is a successful way of talking about your idea. No, this is not. This is not nearly as compelling, this other piece over here. So let's delete that non-compelling piece and let's emphasize this compelling piece. And yes, I'm persuaded if you just do that. So yeah. they'll, they'll be able to tell you that kind of thing. Yeah. And you can also, you know, when we're talking about funded proposals, um, you can also reach out to your internal research office or your foundation office or um, whoever is in charge uh, of submissions. You may, your university may have uh, some that they can share. I know some of the larger research institutions have, you know, a bank internally um, Mm -hmm. that they may be able to, you know, share with you, which may be more recent, which may be, you know, more relevant. But again, I I think, Paul, what you were saying is take everything with a grain of salt. Um, You know, don't try to copy verbatim or don't ever do that. But um, but don't try to read too much into, you know, the the format or the, you know, specific details of these funded projects. Look at, you know, kind of take a step back and see why it was that they were funded and kind of what the common theme is that's, you know, getting them funded. Does that sound right, Paul? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about these specific projects and programs with that with these agencies. Um, so this is something that I struggle with sometimes. Um, and again, you know, I've said it many times on this podcast, but you know, the arts and humanities is not my strong suit when it comes to uh, grant agencies and uh, funding. But when you're looking at the NEA, they have um, they have quite a few project programs. So they have the the Grants for Art projects, Challenge America, and Our Town as their primary programmatic programs. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the key differences between these programs? So why would someone, you know, choose to go after one over another? Um, and, you know, aside from just kind of having a program officer kind of walk you through it, what would make something more suitable for Our Town versus Grants for Art projects? Well, when I presented on the funding landscape for the arts and humanities on March 24th of this year, um, I, I, I put these three actually up on a slide and underlined some of the some of the key phrasing that differed um, between and among these these three. So, the grants for arts projects actually that's the NEA's largest um, uh, uh, funding program. And it's like so, your signature program. Yes, yes, and and so they they actually say that 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 the grants for arts projects program supports quote artistically excellent projects that celebrate our creativity and cultural heritage, invite mutual respect for differing differing beliefs and values, and enrich humanity. 
So that's all about what the NEA is all about. Um, so if, if you're all about and your project is all about what the NEA is all about, then it might be a Grants for Arts projects uh, proposal. But in terms of Challenge America, um, the key phrase there is that those projects under Challenge America, quote, extend the reach of the arts to underserved populations, people who hadn't had a chance to, uh, to, to experience the full flavor of the arts um, uh, because of, uh, of, of low income or, or few opportunities or geographic isolation or some other kind of, of, of way of being underserved. And so uh, if, if you're trying to, to do that kind of work where you're, where you're extending, extending the arts to underserved populations, then Challenge America should be um, a, a program that you look at, a funding program that you look at. Our town as a third choice, um, certainly not the, the, the worst or the least, um, but our town supports projects that, quote, integrate arts, culture, and design activities into efforts that strengthen communities. So it's all about uh, seeing seeing what the arts and what 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 the um, what the community uh, how how they uh, how they in essence um, advance uh, local uh, economic physical and or social outcomes and 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 so there's a connection there between the 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 arts of that particular geographic space our town and the, um, the, the, the way in which the arts actually strengthen that community. Um, there are examples across, across the country of different cities that have uh, arts and humanities councils um, and their arts councils are very strong in large part because they, they and other people working with them have taken advantage of our town funding in order to show the impact of the arts on that particular uh, city or that particular geographic area. And I would encourage everyone to go on to the NEA website and the NEH website, uh, you know, go on to all the websites <laughs> um, and look at what they've funded previously under these programs. Uh, usually they have abstracts and they'll kind of share detail um, and take a look and see what they've been funding and get a feel for what these different portfolios uh, are looking to fund. That's always a good way to kind of familiarize um, yourself with what these agencies um, are really interested in at any given time. Absolutely. Um, so I think we're about out of time today, Paul, do you have any final words of wisdom? Well, I, I think that, um, that at times faculty do struggle with the whole idea of submitting proposals to NEA and NEH because they know that there are a lot of people trying to, um, to obtain funding uh, that is relatively small dollar and, and, uh, and, and it can be, people can become discouraged when they, when they, when they think about the, the, the relative odds about obtaining funding from those two federal agencies. Um, I, I think what, what faculty need to remember when, when you all are, um, are, are, are thinking of applying to NEA and or NEH I think the, the two things you need to need to remember are number one, that, that you need to figure out a way to make your ideas stand out positively from the rest of the thundering herd um, so that you are notable in some sense, different in some sense, 
doing something innovative, doing something um, unusual, um, but still, of course, within the within the the, the range and within the parameters of of, of, the, of the specific program, the RFP. Um, so standing out, but also writing about that compellingly. Um, you have a great deal of passion in you. That's why you're in the arts and humanities in, in, in the largest sense. You have a great deal of passion and excitement to bring. And uh, go ahead and talk about it in, in that way. Um, just wanted to, to let you know that um, that there are folks who can help you, if need be, punch up your um, your your excitement and, and, and your passion in your writing. Uh, there are proposal development folks within your grants office at your institution, and there are also people in the uh, foundation office or in or in advancement or uh, or development office who can help you punch up your writing if 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 you need it. Go ahead and ask for that. Go ahead and ask for people who can help you uh, help you exhibit that passion, exhibit that that persuasiveness, and and figure out ways to uh, to hit those buttons um, in the review team uh, to hit those buttons that show that you are both standing out and uh, and 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 have a compelling message. And we can help you too. So feel free to ask <laughs> us. Feel free to reach out to us. We can help you punch that up too. Paul, I want to thank you so much for your time today. This has been really um, interesting and fun and enlightening. And hopefully for those who are out there listening, um, it makes pursuing funding within the arts and humanities a little more accessible, a little less scary for them. So thanks so much. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Paul. I want to quickly (laughs) highlight a few of Hanover's other resources that we have available. So we have uh, the grants portal, which contains a lot of great information on our previous podcast webinars, templates. We also have a really awesome NIH toolkit in there. So um, if you're listening to this podcast, but you're (laughs) going to be pursuing NIH funding, um, check that out. Um, The grants portal is available to all members. Um, Reach out to your contact for the Hanover Partnership for more information on these and other resources and how to access them. Hanover's next webinar is going to be on April 28th, and it's going to be on NSF career fact or fiction. So we have NSF career season coming up with that with those proposals due at the end of July. So tune into that um, and also take a look at the Grantsmanship Training Center, which has uh, some great information on NSF career there as well. Again, you can reach out to your primary contact for the Hanover Partnership, or you can shoot a question to me at podcast at HanoverResearch.com if you have questions about that or any of the other resources um, here. Um, You can also leave me a voicemail at 202-499-6736. Once again, thank you all so much for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time. (laughs) 